We have a guest with us tonight, Lou Phelps from Pocatello, Idaho. Have you ever heard of Pocatello, Idaho? How many have? Great. Lou, come on up, would you? I'm going to ask him a few questions. Lou, you and I have something in common besides the fact that we love Christ. Right. You are from, is that on? Uh, there you go. Yeah, it is. Good. That's, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. If you go like this, it doesn't work. If you go like that, it does work. But you know that you're a pastor. You use these things all the time. Absolutely. Now, you come from Orange County originally? Actually, I was born right in the middle of Utah. If you took an X to Utah, I was born right smack dab in the middle of it. Where those two lines intersect, you were born. Exactly. And then you moved to California? Moved to, it ended up in Costa Mesa. And, and then you moved to Idaho. Right. Why? We're, we're still asking ourselves that. <laughs> it's a tough spot, but you know what? God is working in miraculous ways. Now, for you to go to Idaho, was it some kind of a cultural shock being from a state of 35 million people to a town of how, how big is Pocatello? Pocatello is about 65,000, but I was actually, my first home was a little place called Jerusalem, Utah of 55 people. Yeah. <laughs> You know how I knew that? Because I read your book. Oh, thank you. That's you just, he just uh, wrote a book on Mormonism. Were you raised Mormon? Yes. And can you tell us what changed? What happened to you? I never fit in. Uh, the, whole, the whole godhood thing bothered me, the idea of coming, becoming a god one day. Even as a kid in the Mormon church, I never really fit in. And my parents didn't either. We just were kind of the black sheep of the... We just didn't fit in, you know? And uh, when I asked questions, I was just told, just believe what you're told. Don't ask questions. Just be a good Mormon. And uh, so I left. And I unfortunately went the wrong direction. Girls and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, fortunately, the Lord took me to Costa Mesa where I lost everything. And I ended up living next door to this little old lady that went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And she drugged me to church one night. And this bald-headed guy came out with a smile. And after, after that, it was all over. Oh. <laughs> Was that Chuck? That was Chuck. Right. Uh, um, okay. Does he do that all the time? Does he do Chuck? No. Only when I have jet lag, I do odd things. If I get a cold, I can do Chuck. But can you? Yeah. Um, now, to start a Calvary Chapel in Pocatello, how how was that? Was that received? Were you seen as a cult by the cults? Actually, yes. Um, well, what's weird is um, I went up there to start a radio station for Pastor Chuck. We started an FM, and uh, the guy was pastoring the church. We started at Calvary. There was about 30 people, and he got called by Don McClure to go to San Jose, and we needed a pastor. And there was no one else to do the pastoring. I was supposed to be running a radio station. And so I thought, well, I like doing home Bible studies and stuff, so I'll do Sunday mornings until Chuck sends a guy up here, and we're still waiting for the guy, <laughs> you know. But... Uh, <laughs> now, before we go on, you, you brought your wife tonight, yes, didn't you? Yes, Phyllis is here. Where is Phyllis? Phyllis, stand up. Stand up oh, and say hi. She's right in the front. Give her a warm so welcome. Yeah. And she's sitting next to my wife, Lenya. Lenya, stand up. Say hi. Look at that. Unashamed. See, it takes all the fun out of it. When you pick on somebody, they're supposed to act shy because that's the whole joke. But when I can't play a joke on my Isn't wife. Isn't one of the Calvary distinctives that, that the guys have really pretty wives? Is yeah, that isn't a that nice? Yeah. 
hey, I'm an ex-Mormon, what can I say? <laughs> Sorry, that was uncalled for. He started it. <laughs> now, Lou, speaking of that, do you have... How many, what's the percentage of Mormonism in your part of the country? We're about 75 to 80% LDS just in Pocatello. Seriously? Yes. And I think the fact that I came out of Mormonism and teach through the Bible, like I'm sure you teach through Sunday nights, you go through the Bible? Or we do Wednesday, Wednesday nights? nights. Wednesday nights. You do it Wednesday nights. Well, that's, that'll be fun for tonight. Yeah, we want you to go through the whole Bible. That's what... Well... Genesis to Revelation, right? I only had the Torah. I only had the Torah plan for tonight. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any, do you have any um, highlights or individual stories? I'm sure you have plenty, but can you share with us a story of how you, uh, of, of a conversion from Mormonism, maybe somebody asking questions and <laughs> besides yourself? I got to tell you, we, us, us Calvary pastors are not hooked up right, okay? And I went down to see, uh, went down to Costa Mesa to see some pastor friends, and I came back and I had two of my, my book just came out, and I had two of them to give to a friend. I didn't get to see them. And so I brought the books back with me, and I'm in the Salt Lake City Airport waiting for my flight to Pocatello. And I've got these two books, and I'm thinking, God's going to use these books somehow here at this airport. And I was trying to look for somebody to give them to, and <laughs> and then my, my eyes went past the bookstore. And there were all the, the bestsellers, and, all of the, and then the, all the Mormon book bestsellers, like their prophet, Gordon B. Hinckley. And there was an empty spot next to his book. <laughs> you didn't. I did. You did. <laughs> No, it gets better. I swear before the Lord, this I, I was. we were driving to the airport to come here to see you guys, and my assistant pastor called me on my cell phone. He said, Lou, you'll never believe the email I just got. This lady got your book, and she read it, and she's, she was raised in Mormonism, and now she's rejected it. She's become a Christian. She wants to buy some more of your books, and she says that she got your book at the Salt Lake City Airport. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love it. That's oh, creative man. evangelism. <laughs> Sneaky but creative. <laughs> um, Lou, I've lost my mind. I, um, I had a question on my mind and I forgot it. It's the jet lag. Can I blame it on that? It, he's like this at all the pastor's conferences, too. <laughs> <laughs> Lou, honestly, we right up the street here, and some people know it. In fact, before I even get to that issue... Um, there are a lot of Christians you've encountered yes. who think, well, Mormonism is just another sect of Christianity. It's another sure. denomination. Briefly, give us a thumbnail sketch of the differences. The, the main difference always, you've got to go to the person of the master. It's Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus is just an exalted man. He was once like us, a sinner that was, uh, went through all the struggles we did, blew it, had to be redeemed, went through all of the hula hoops to get righteous and become worthy, and now he's become, you know, everybody can become their own god. Uh, he's the half-brother of Lucifer. And uh, Everybody, I yes. could become my own god? I could become... You know, Does that scare yes. you to think of me as a god? Oh, man. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. It was a scary thought. And so I think when you get down to the issue of who's god and who's man... I mean, there's one God, Brigham Young called the, the, the Trinity, you know, the, those Christians have a three-headed monster. We don't have a three-headed monster. We've got an incredible, almighty God, and there's the only one. And, and he's doing a really good job all by himself, don't you think? That's right. You know? That's right. So, so the Lord Jesus Christ, the Trinity, what about Scripture? Um, they believe the Bible, but they think it's been watered down over time in translation. And so they'll say, well, the Bible's okay, but it's really got some problems. What you need is our book. 
And so, of course, they've got the Book of Mormon, Mm -hmm. which really doesn't say a lot about Mormonism. To really learn what Mormonism teaches, you have to read the the writings of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, which is the Journal of Discourses, uh, the Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. Book of Mormon really doesn't say anything about becoming a god or that God was once a man or any of that stuff. Right. You've got to go to their teachings to learn. How many Mormons do you know who are ignorant of those other teachings of the Mormon Church? You know what, you guys? Mormonism is changing. They want to fit into mainline Christianity today. It wasn't like that 20 years ago. It's changed radically. So they don't like to talk about a lot of these things. So do you think they're deliberately keeping some of that stuff? Yes. Oh, absolutely. The leadership does. For the most part, the common people, they don't know what else to think. But I guarantee, how many of you know a Mormon friend or coworker or most of you? I guarantee you that most of those people know there's something wrong. They just don't know quite what to do. And there's so many books out on Mormonism that are kind of nasty. They're, they're just really hard-hitting. And as soon as they read that stuff, the book gets thrown in the, right. in the trash. I wanted to do something that was loving. In fact, I, I defend Mormonism in the first part of the book. Interesting. As a, you know, so it's kind of, yeah, it kind right. of gets their attention. And it helps Christians to understand with the mindset of the Mormon. But for the Mormon, it, it reaches them in love. And I think that's why Calvary chapels do such a good job, because we really do reach out to people in love. Well, right you know? up the street recently... A new building has been constructed, yes. and if you're driving up um, like Paseo del Norte or uh, Eubank, you can see it. It's an imposing building, the Mormon Temple, right. and it's in it kind of it dominates that whole sector of the city. Give us some things we can do to be equipped to reach out uh, to those who are in our community who are Mormons. Number one, learn a little bit so you can understand. And secondly, don't push too hard. Uh, You're you're never going to win a Mormon in an argument. You won't win a Mormon in an argument. You can prove Mormonism wrong all day long. Befriend them. They're they're good people. Couldn't have a better neighbor or or family member than an LDS person. They want to know God. They want to go to heaven. They want to understand who Jesus is, but they're wrapped up in a cult. There's a blindness there. And, folks, the number one thing you've got to do is pray for these people. Mm -hmm. And they're growing. There's an attractiveness to it. Uh, Satan always makes his devices attracting. Yes. You know, and so learn a little bit about it so you can minister to them and share the word. The word, the, it's the, you don't know it, Skip. It's the word of God that goes between soul and spirit. Amen. It deals with what's in here. And they don't know the Bible very well. They really don't. Well, it, we ought to learn it. We ought to know the word. We ought to know what they believe and reach out then. Well, we're going to hear more from Lou in just a minute. Give him a big hand. There are moments in time that we can all remember when a news report flashes into our lives. Since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Sometimes the news is good. Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Other times the news can be troubling. Uh, it, it appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. If the bulletin is severe enough, it can change everything. Today we've had a national tragedy. Two airplanes have crashed into the World Trade Center in an apparent terrorist attack on our country. Now consider this. If news of the work of evil men can turn our days upside down, how much will the work of God someday stop this world in its tracks? Think about it, because that day is approaching. 
This is Buck Williams reporting live from Israel. I am standing in the middle of an all-out attack. Fire is raining from the sky. This is just unbelievable. This has got to be the biggest surprise attack since Pearl Harbor. Tonight, we turn to Isaiah 53, where the report of God's great work is announced by this ancient prophet. Here we find the good news of forgiveness and the sure promise of the coming kingdom of Christ. Unfortunately, we'll also see that there are many who are unwilling to believe the report of the gospel that Isaiah presents. All this and much more will be covered by Pastor Lou Phelps as we study Isaiah 53, Lime Online. Well, would you join me in welcoming Lou Phelps to teach our study now? Well, tell you what, let's turn to Isaiah 53 real quick. Uh, I want to show you some really interesting things. I'm sure Skip's taking you through Isaiah 53. I want to show you just a couple of really neat insights that I've learned about it recently. Um, (laughs) My wife told me not to to forget to tell you guys, this is the book. We did put five more of them in the the Salt Lake City Airport this morning. (laughs) We did. Notice that they're, they're, they're yellow and purple. That's Laker colors. All right, all right. We'll get Colby fixed, don't worry. We will. We'll get him prayed into the kingdom. (laughs) Isaiah chapter 53. You know, as a Mormon kid growing up, you don't learn much of the Bible. You get a snippet from the Sermon on the Mount, and you get just very little. Um, When I went to Calvary Costa Mesa... I was blown away at a couple things. Number one, that the Bible was taught so beautifully and just so so much of it. And also that this pastor would spend so much time in the Old Testament. And I'll never forget realizing, wow, you can just find Jesus on every page. And of course, that's one of the things I'm sure you all thought about tonight. I'll bet when you heard we're going to go through Isaiah 53 tonight, you all just went, oh yeah, that's a that's a great chapter. That's the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament, man. That's a... That's one of the most famous ones. And it is, and I want to show you that. We're going to look at it in a little bit different way than, than maybe you've seen it before. But it is a chapter among chapters where under divine inspiration, Isaiah gives us a graphic pen portrait of the suffering Savior and gives incredible detail to the atoning work that he will accomplish that will settle the sin issue once and for all as infinite justice is satisfied. And it is. Man, it's a neat chapter. It's one of those chapters that seems to start in the wrong place, and yet I think after we look at it tonight, I think it starts right exactly where it should. And as we read, you can almost imagine that as you go through this, it's like, man, it sounds like Paul almost. It sounds like a New Testament letter. And yet it was written 700 years before Christ came on the scene. And so a fantastic chapter indeed. H.A. Ironside comments, listen to what Ironside said, none but God himself could have given us these remarkable details of the character and work of the Lord Jesus so long before he came into the world. Isaiah wrote this prophecy some 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem in order to fulfill all that was written of him. God foreknew all that his son was to endure, and he gave this message to Isaiah to hand on to the future generations. Now, We're going to go through this verse by verse tonight, but I want to talk about a few things of it. There are some aspects, first of all, that are already fulfilled that's obvious to us. 
as we look at the text, we go, wow, that just that tells of the crucifixion and his burial and his resurrection so beautifully in the Old Testament. It's, it's such a great chapter. Listen to what else we find. It's, well, Christ is presented as a sinless substitute for sinful men. Here in chapter 53 is shown that our sins were imputed, that his divine righteousness might be imputed to us who believe. We also find in this chapter his lowly life, his rejection by his own people, the Jews, his voluntary subjection to the suffering on the cross, his burial, his glorious resurrection, the triumph of his gospel going out to the world where great multitudes will come to him by faith, and they're all foretold in 12 verses. I mean, it's really a packed chapter, and I pray that you might take a few notes tonight and remember some of these things. I don't think you'll ever remember Isaiah 53 the same. At least, I sure hope that's the case. But there is another aspect of this chapter that you've probably never considered, and Hang in there with me. Don't, don't leave the building when you hear this. It's like, oh, there's that ex-Mormon. He's, he's twisted. <laughs> Every verse in its context is not fulfilled yet. Isaiah 53 is completely all yet future. I'll show you. Hang in there. Don't, don't throw tomatoes or anything yet. The key is the first verse. The question is asked, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this first key is the key to understanding really the rest of the chapter. We, here's my problem, if, especially as a brand new Christian, it was like, oh, that's such a neat chapter, that you kind of lay chapter 52 aside and 54 aside and just go right to chapter 53 and realize, oh, here comes that neat stuff about Jesus. And I think we can make the mistake of, of not putting it in its context. And we're going we're gonna to check that out. First of all, the question is asked, who has believed our report? What report? Gang, it's the report about Messiah. Isaiah, especially in all these last chapters here, in the last half of the book, it's mainly about Jesus. Uh, not only his earthly life uh, when he came the first time, but in his second coming, glorious millennial reign and all. And Isaiah 53 has a neat part in that. The next question that comes up there in verse... 50, chapter 53, verse 1 is, Who has believed our report? Number one, what's that about? That's about Jesus. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Wasn't that long ago I did a study on this, uh, the arm of the Lord. What does that mean? I mean, the Bible talks a lot about God. It talks about His wings. It talks about His finger. It talks about His hand. What about the arm of the Lord? What does that really speak to us of? It comes down to it, if you were to define it in one sentence, the arm of the Lord speaks of God's saving power through His Son, Jesus Christ. God's strength, God's arm. Where, where would God use that strength? Well, the arm of the Lord is all wrapped up in the saving power of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's an Old Testament idiom that Isaiah uses three times in his prophecy. In fact, it comes up back in chapter 52, if you'll look with me, verses 9 and 10. Isaiah writes 52, 9, Break forth into joy, sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has made bare His holy arm. In the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. What salvation? The salvation that Jesus brought mankind as He rolled up His sleeves and He bore those magnificent arms and your sins and mine were laid upon Him and He hung there and died in our place. 
the arm of the Lord. Now that's the report. Isaiah writes, who has believed our report? This is the greatest report that the world has ever heard. Neither Dan Rather, Peter Jennings, Brent Hume, any of those reporters have ever had such a report to to tell. And it's echoed through the ages. You know, I used to think, and in a way it's still true, that, that Isaiah 53 starts in the wrong place. If you go back to verse 13, it's speaking of Jesus in his agony. The sin-bearing servant, behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Speaking of his being lifted up on the cross. Just as many as were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations, no doubt with his blood. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Talks about what he's done. Then we get down to chapter 53. Who's it revealed to? Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Who was who salvation, this message of God coming and Jesus came and showed it. I mean, it was there. Who was it revealed to? It's a real easy answer. It was revealed to the Jews. It was revealed to Israel first. Now, we're talking about the good news of the gospel and I know that you all understand this, that the message went out to the Jew first. Paul talked about that in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Folks, let's remember the church was 99.9% Jewish when it started. And though it was 99.9% Jewish, it was a very small section or part, percentage of Israel that believed. For the most part, the nation rejected him. They'd waited for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come and they rejected Him. And so the, the, the message, the report, goes out to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Now, I'm pretty Gentile. <laughs> See, as a Mormon, you're told when you're raised as a Mormon kid, if you accept Joseph Smith as your prophet, then that proves that you are a descendant of the ten lost tribes of Israel. So most Mormon people believe that they're actually Jews. Utah is the only place a real Jew can go and be considered a Gentile, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> But I've come to know better. I'm very Gentile. I do have a Jew living in my heart, and I am grafted in. <laughs> but, man, I am all, I don't know about you guys, but I'm a mutt. I mean, I am Norwegian and Dutch and, and English. No French. Uh, um, <laughs> Skip's never going to ask me back. <laughs> but... The message, the report went to the Jew first. It was the greatest news, and yet it was rejected. And that's what chapter 53 is all about. First of all, yes, Jesus has done this. Don't, please don't take me wrong tonight. This is done. Jesus has done this. But the way it's being looked at is from a Jewish perspective in the future. Hang in there with me. Who has believed our report? Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? The Jews. But gang, there's a time coming very soon when they will believe in Him. You know, I was thinking about this on the way down here today. Think of how many chapters of the Bible are almost ready to be fulfilled. Right now we're living in Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is happening right before our eyes. We live in it. Very soon Ezekiel 38 and 39 could happen. That, by the way, could happen really soon. Revelation 19 could take place within seven years as the Lord would come back. Do you realize that within a decade we could be in the millennium? 
I mean, there's just a lot of things that are going to be fulfilled very soon. I think most of us believe that. And, and maybe we're wrong about that. I think, Skip, you believe the same thing. Don't you that believe that we're on the... I mean, the rapture could happen so soon. There are so many things that are happening. Man alive. But the Jews are one day going to believe. They've got to go through a lot of trouble to get there. That's what the last seven years is all about, is God gets their attention. Shows them that this Antichrist character that's going to eventually bring a real peace plan... By the way, do you think that the new one's going to work? Is the roadmap to peace going to work? I love President Bush, and we need to keep him in prayer. He's a neat brother. But he's messed up with, with, I don't know where he's getting his prophecy stuff from, but this roadmap to peace is a roadmap to Armageddon. It's scary stuff. And it's probably going to force Israel to retaliate in such a way that it could be the hook in the jaw. Did you know that Isaiah 17, I'm getting off my notes a little bit now, but did you know that Isaiah 17 says that Damascus is going to be wiped out? Where are most of the groups, where are most of the terror groups headquartered today? In Damascus, Syria. And Isaiah 17 tells us that it's going to be obliterated. It doesn't necessarily say that it's during the last seven years either. And so if Israel has to retaliate heavy duty, and we just saw those ugly bombs that took place on Monday, who knows what could happen. The Bible is so relevant to our day today. It's amazing to me. But sure enough, 700 years after Isaiah pens these words, Jesus comes on the scene, fulfills all the prophecy concerning himself. I mean, everything to a T. From living in Nazareth to being born in Bethlehem to the tribe of Judah to a virgin. Some people say, well, he set that stuff up. How do you set up getting born of a virgin? That's a tough one. (laughs) But... Though Jesus has fulfilled this in the sense that what they're going to talk about here he's done, here's the glimpse. It's when Israel finally gets saved and they look back and realize who he was and that they had rejected him. And oh my goodness, he did that for us. And he is our king and he did do these things. Put your little yarmulke on tonight. Propellers are okay. Put your Jewish hats on, if you will, and try to look at this with me from a Jewish standpoint. Now, there might be some of you even now going, now, this is already going too out there, you know. Turn with me to John 12. I, I believe that Jesus bails me out on this. John chapter 12. It's amazing where Isaiah 53 is used in the New Testament. You'll find Isaiah 53 used by Peter, Paul, Ringo, not Ringo. I love it. I loved you guys playing that music tonight, Skip. In, in our church, we take some of the old Eagles songs and uh, play. And I didn't realize how talented your pastor was. I, I've seen you play the bass, but I didn't know you could sing and guitar. And, and that bass, that drum machine, now that thing is cool. I bet you they're going to have those in the kingdom, I'll bet. And I want one. <laughs> That's a pretty cool deal. John 12, Jesus is going through a situation where they're not believing in him, everything that we're talking about. And we'll pick it up at verse 32. John 12, verse 32, Jesus speaking of the cross, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. And this he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, Well, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said, a little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. But you have the light. Believe. That's a huge word. Believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. But although he had done so many signs before them, before who? Before the Jews. Although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I've probably read this a, a, a thousand times as a Christian for the last 20 years, and I, it's just this last little while that it's, it's like, hey, that, that fits over here with this and, and all, and it starts making more sense. Again, I think we've made the mistake of isolating this chapter from the rest because of its grandeur. I mean, we often at our church use Isaiah 53 for communion services and all. It's just such a great chapter. But chapter 52, precede it. And then it's followed up by chapter 54. And it's all about Israel in the last days. It's kind of like we look at Psalm 22. What a neat chapter. Everybody's familiar with Psalm 22. It's probably the most known psalm, if not maybe Psalm 23. But Psalm 22 is its own psalm. There's nothing before it, nothing after it as far as context goes. Isaiah 53 has a lot of prophecy around it in chapters that way and chapters that way. And so that's kind of what we'll take a peek at as, as we go through it tonight. And so Isaiah 53 is a continuing saga of God working in and through the nation Israel. And then we find in this prophecy Christ's second coming, really. And at his second coming, we find Israel responding. And, oh, guys, can you imagine that? I, I love the Jews. I, I've been to Israel seven times now. I usually go over with Chuck Missler every year. And Chuck Missler is a real fun guy to go to Israel with. And uh, him and Nancy are just really good friends of ours. And, and all. But you get over there, and if you're like me, I know some of you have probably been skip. You get a love for the Jew, don't you, Skip? There's just a... There's something about it over there. There's the land and the people and... The one frustrating thing, though, is you so desperately want them to know Jesus. And, and you get to know some of the tour guides really well. We always get Jewish tour guides because they seem to have a deeper love and appreciation for the, the Old Testament and the land. And, and you get frustrated because, they, man, here they are listening to, to Chuck Missler Bible studies or Chuck Smith or Pastor Skip. And you think, man, how could they, they, they could never get better Bible teaching than this. You think the light would come on, and, and it doesn't. I just got back from Russia in uh, June. We went and planted a church in Crystal Goose, Russia, just outside of Vladimir and, oh, six, six hours out of Moscow. And one of the things that amazed me, it was my first missions trip as far as getting a church started and getting out. And I was amazed that the Russian people were so open and receptive and they'd hear the gospel and people would stand up and run to the altar. I was blown away. <laughs> it really was because usually when I go across the ocean, it's to go to Israel. I just love it there. But there's coming a day when the Jews are going to understand. Paul writes about it in Romans 8, or Romans 9, 10, and 11, that parenthesis in Romans. All Israel shall be saved. Speaking of that remnant. What an exciting thing that will be to see. And it could happen soon. Again, in a decade, let's say a decade. I mean, everything can transpire that the, the book of Revelation encompasses and the rapture could happen so soon and, and then the global judgment's coming and then the, the Jews going through the whole thing with the Antichrist and having to flee to Petra and realizing that Jesus is Lord and Isaiah 53 could literally be fulfilled in the sense that we're going to look at it tonight. I really do think the trumpet could sound soon. We're not going to see global judgment. I hope you're pre-tribulational. If you're planning on going through the Great Tribulation, you can, you can believe that. We'll explain it to you on the way up. And, um, <laughs> but global judgment's coming. Global judgment was coming in Noah's day. And God provided an escape for Noah. 
global judgment was coming. And I guarantee you that Noah was not mid-flood or post-flood. He was pre-flood. <laughs> he was. <laughs> Peter, <laughs> Peter, says that, <laughs> Peter said that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. That means he's the first preacher to ever give a watered-down message. Nobody ever likes that one. I, I try so hard with that one. <laughs> now we get to Isaiah 53, and I believe if you look at it in this context, Isaiah is showing that Israel is responding to Jesus from verse 1 to verse 10. It's their public confession. In fact, notice in verse 6, going back to Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, For the Lord... No, 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 no. This is a new Bible for me. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned. It's not an individual thing. It's we. I believe it's a national thing. And though this is Israel, of course, it still applies to us. Yes, this applies to us. Jesus did this for us. But it's Israel responding nationally, understanding what Jesus has done. They're just getting it. And so we got all the way to verse 2. Does Skip teach this fast too? We got all the way to verse 2, okay. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. See, this is so neat. This Basically, verse 2 is telling us why they rejected him. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of the dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's why Israel didn't believe in Jesus. You know, his origin and appearance were lowly. For goodness sakes, he's from Nazareth. That's a shady town up in the Galilee area. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. You've heard that. He's got some really bad baggage from his mom. Even the Pharisees had picked up on that when Jesus went to Jerusalem. Hey, we've heard about your mom. And so there were family problems. He was poor. He ate with sinners tax collectors, publicans, and Democrats. He was just, you know, sorry. (laughs) And they probably expected him to come in on a chariot of fire and he would have, you know, he'd rub elbows with the hobnob in Jerusalem and the the chief priests and uh, all the important people. But Jesus was hanging out with fishermen. And they rejected that. They, They had a hard time with that. There is no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, it talks about his deep humiliation. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Speaking in the past, we didn't esteem him. We hid our faces from him. Now, I, pardon me, but it doesn't sound like the church. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the church. Though these things apply to us, I really do believe this is Israel. Some of the things, the way I've learned about some of this stuff is from an old German pastor named Harry Boltima. Neat guy, lived back in the 1800s in Germany. And he was one of those crazy prophecy buff guys that was willing to stand up in a day when it wasn't popular and say, you know, I think the Bible says Israel's going to become a nation again. And he was willing to say that the Jews are still God's people. And he believed the church is going to be raptured. And he's the one that talks a little bit about how Isaiah 53 is Israel's song when the kingdom starts. Listen to what he says. History has all too clearly vindicated this statement. Christ was despised by Israel's learned men and by the Roman world in its representative Pontius Pilate, who scourged him and delivered him to the Jewish mob. 
Its soldiers cast dice for his robe, and the Jews have despised him to this very day. They have made fists against him and spit to the ground upon hearing his name. In the Jewish Talmud, he is called Yeshu, which contain the first letters of the phrase, Let his name and remembrance be blotted out. They blasphemed his virgin mother and also his disciples. And so we see his humiliation there in verse 3 and also his rejection. Verse 4, it talks about him bearing our griefs. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we, again, this has got to be Israel, folks. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Again, that's not the church saying that. They rejected him. Remember, they said, we will not have this man to rule over us. They said that kind of, it was a public confession. We will not have him to rule over us. In Matthew 27, it says, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And then answered all the people. Israel. All. You guys know what all is in the Greek, don't you? You know what it means? All. John, of course, will say, Oh, man, it's all, man. Peter John was... Do you guys have Skip on... Do you guys have John Corson on your station? Oh, so the people don't know what I'm talking about. Okay. I do one voice and it doesn't work in Albuquerque. <laughs> I'll share it with you later, Skip. <laughs> now, that wasn't the response of the Gentiles at all. His blood be on us and on our children? That's what Israel said. We won't have him rule over us. His blood be on us and our children. The Gentiles didn't say that. Remember how the message went out in the book of Acts to the Gentile areas. And multitudes of people believed the report by the thousands. And then, you know, you get to an instance is chapter 13 where they're in Antioch of Pisidia. And Paul's been preaching there in the, uh, the various synagogues. And it says, and when the Jews went out of the synagogue, listen, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them. Oh, Paul, would you come back next Saturday and talk about this some more, this Jesus? What's he like? Tell us more about this Jewish Messiah. They'd never heard about Jesus before. And when they received him, they received him. They didn't consider him smitten of God and afflicted. They hadn't rejected him in the sense that Israel did. I really do believe, without doubt, that Isaiah 53 is Israel's repentance and acceptance. They're rehearsing what he did. And I'm getting into the story. It's just so much fun. And as we talk about this, please understand, I'm not down on the Jewish people. This is all prophesied of what will happen. And we love them and we pray for them. And I thank God when we do find the few that do come. But there's coming a day when they will receive Jesus for who he is. It was well documented documented in Old and New Testament that the Jew would reject Jesus. Paul mentions it and uses Isaiah 53. Turn to Romans chapter 10 really quick. We'll look at one more digression tonight. Now, you know that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are that parenthesis in the book of Romans where Paul gets into Israelology. And his main thrust is God's not done with Israel. In fact, he says in chapter 11, verse 25, don't be ignorant of this mystery, that hardness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And I believe the fullness of the Gentiles is just about up. There's one more Gentile somewhere out there. that There's going to be that one last person. It'll be a Gentile. That one last person will get saved. I believe they're Canadian. And when it happens, 
I don't know if that's a word of knowledge or not. <laughs> but when that happens, the time of the Gentiles over, and the Holy Spirit's going to start a work in Israel. The Holy Spirit will be ministering heavy duty, but it's also going to take pain. They're going to, Israel's going to have to go through, through some really difficult times. But Paul wants the people, when he wrote to the Romans, to understand God's not done with Israel. We pick it up at verse, well, I love these first four verses. Chapter 10, it reminds me of my Mormon background. He said, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Think of that verse for a minute. Paul's talking about very religious people. Sincere, dedicated, they knew the Old Testament. And Paul said, oh, I really wish they'd be saved. They weren't. You have to have Jesus Christ. Religion won't work. Bible memorization won't work. If you do not trust in Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior, you have no hope. But God loves you and He wants you to have hope. And so He sent His Son. And in your simple believing and receiving in Him, there's life. And that's what was so hard for me as a Mormon kid coming out realizing they've got a false Jesus. And though they're sincere and good and moral, none of that will get you into heaven. And Paul's praying that no doubt he's thinking about some of his old Pharisee buddies and some of his old neighbors. And, oh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We get down to verse 11. Here's where Paul's going to use our text tonight. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call on him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, how then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent, as it is written? And this comes out of the chapter before, Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings, or the good report, if you will, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they, Israel, they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? There it is. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, indeed, have they not heard? Well, yes, they got, they got their good report. Their sound has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. And I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. First, God speaking through Isaiah. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Does that mean that God's done with them? No. Chapter 11, verse 1, I say, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. God's not done with a Jew. And isn't it exciting that we live in the day that Israel's back in the land? This last war that we were in and are still over there dealing with in Iraq right now, isn't it amazing that Babylon is being ready to be rebuilt? Folks, everything is right on line. Everything is right on course. Amazing days that you and I have an opportunity to live in. And so Isaiah 53 is not yet fulfilled. It speaks of a time yet future when Israel will testify of Jesus and His finished work. Now His atoning work is fulfilled, but not the context of the chapter. So Isaiah 53, 
is a response to two things. Number one, they, re- they, they rehearse how they rejected him. And secondly, how they now believe, of course, yet future. And one day, you and I will see how the Jews respond to him. I'm looking forward to it. I don't know what the Lord's going to have me during, during, doing during the millennium. I want whatever his will is for my life then. But I, I've put in for administrative duty on the Temple Mount. I love Jerusalem. I really do. I just love Jerusalem. And it's weird because it's an oven place. There's no rivers. There's no uh, beaches. There's no natural resources. It's the big top of a rocky mountain. And yet there's something about Jerusalem. You know? But saints, Christians, when we are there in the millennium with the Lord... We're going to see him there as he rules and reigns planet earth from Israel, from Jerusalem. And we're going to see how the Jews are just going to be so taken back. This is our king. We rejected him and our our forefathers. Man, they made the worst mistake ever, but he went through it for us and he loved us and he protected us. And he's our king. And oh, and the whole world, the whole world's going to look at Israel different. I recently did a couple messages. I, I, I called it When the World Loves Israel, part one and two. And the whole aspect of the way the world's going to look at Israel then. Right now the world hates Israel. It's it's a problem. It's a problem to every embassy around the world. What are we going to do about Jerusalem? What are we going to do about the Jews? Think, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's six million people and, you know, goodness sakes, it's not even as big as Lake Michigan. You can put all of Israel in Lake Michigan. What's the big deal? Oil's the big deal. Islam is the big deal. What's the big deal between Islam and and Israel, their books. <laughs> you got the Bible and the Quran. The Quran tells the Muslim that when you take land, you never give it back. It's a promise from Allah, the moon god. It's false deity. Well, they took Israel. Guess what? They're back in the land. What does it prove? It proves that Jehovah God of the Bible is the true and living God. And it's created a huge conflict. And that's where the hatred and the anti-Semitism, and to be honest, the satanic aspect of it comes in. And and we're watching that. But, oh, one day it's not going to be like that anymore. The world's going to look to Israel and Gentiles around the world as the world is being repopulated and all are going to have a love for the Jewish people. Look back after we've had these bombs and everything. uh, was Was it Monday? Look back, if you will. We're in Isaiah 53. Look back at chapter 52. This is millennial stuff. Chapter 52, verse... Oh, let's pick it up at verse 13. No, yeah, that's right. do I do that? I know I wrote down the right one. and I, It's not the right verses. I just looked at it at the hotel before I came down here to make sure it was the right one too. Every time I get a new Bible, I, I ruin my, I messed up my old Bible. Okay, no, that's not it either. That is not it. 13 and 14. You've got to look it up sometime. It's really good. Let's move on. <laughs> oh, it's the one about terror. I really wanted to... It's such an incredible verse. I really didn't want to leave you guys without that. That's just so neat. It talks about them not having terror anymore. Probably nobody brought their strongest concordance to church because they figured the pastor will know what he's talking about. 
Oh. Is it 54? Thank you. Ha ha. I knew that. I just want to see a skip new. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. <laughs> I was one chapter early. Okay. Look at this, though. This is so beautiful, you guys. All your children. Speaking to Israel. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Is that a great promise today or what? It's a truth, folks. Oh, how glorious it's going to be when Jesus reigns from Jerusalem. Instead of anti-Semitism, there will be a love and respect for Jewish people among the nations. Zechariah tells us in chapter 8, Yea, many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. This one, Jesus is reigning. And pray before him. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations and even take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Man, is Israel going to be a neat witness during the millennium to the, to the Gentile nations. Verse 5. I promise you we're moving quick here. He was wounded. Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. There we find the suffering of his body and soul. And by the way, the Hebrew word for wounded there means pierced through, which is quite fascinating. Verse 6, we find the confession of the redeemed. And here's their national confession. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Notice that verse begins and ends with the word all. And these are things that the church did as each individual accepted Christ, but really in the context, this is Israel accepting redemption as a whole. Verse 7, we find his mock trial and the manner in which he suffered. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Clearly shown in the New Testament, this being fulfilled in Matthew 26, Mark 15, Acts chapter 8. Verse 8 speaks of his death, the price of our salvation. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Why? For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Speaks of us all, to be sure, but it really, as far as the context, is speaking of Israel. Verse 9 speaks of his burial. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Folks, this is showing that now converted Israel's sad past that almost no one in Israel at that time considered and took to heart the meaning and the significance of the Savior's suffering and death as far as its unique worth and merit is concerned. They did not know in the past the significance and value of his life, but neither of his death. And they had seen his life as that of a worthless person and his death of that as a criminal. That's the way they saw it. But one day they're going to come to know the truth. And confess it. Verse 9 speaks of his burial. We read, we got down to verse 10. It speaks of his being bruised by the Father and his resurrection. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. So he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You mean this one that, that died and was killed and is now going to prosper and rule and all this? Yes. Verse 10 is quite an amazing thing to realize. His glorious resurrection. Now, 
I believe that verses 1 through 10 are Israel's national confession. We read it and go, man, this is so cool how that just speaks to us of Jesus. The Jews don't see that yet, but they will. And I believe that this is how they're going to respond. Now, verses 10, excuse me, verses 11 through the end is where the father takes over and declares the fruit of his son's obedience. Oh, this is great. Verse 11. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant, the father says, no doubt, shall justify many. He shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Neat deal. And notice that Jesus all the way through here, the Messiah is called the servant. 23 different times Isaiah will mention the servant uh, as he goes through the prophecies. Now it's not always speaking of the Messiah. But when you look, you'll find that there are instances where Jesus or the servant is, is called that eight times, which is Jesus's number. But after chapter 53, never again is the Messiah referred to as a servant. It's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Do you know him? Philip. Philip used this scripture. You remember the Ethiopian eunuch came to Israel. He was looking for truth. He didn't find it where he was at. And he came, he'd heard about the God of the Jews, he'd heard about Solomon's glory, he'd heard about the Red Sea parting and all the things that the Jews had gone through. And he came to Jerusalem looking for truth. And sadly, he left without any. And God sent Philip down. Philip was an interesting guy. Philip has had four daughters. They were called prophetesses. Phyllis and I, just to let you know, we do have four kids, and they're all girls. We only wanted two. We kept trying for a boy. And after four, we said, that's enough. You see, please don't think I'm putting my daughters down. I love them so much. They mean so much to me. Um, And I feel that I'm more fortunate than a man that has $4 million because he wants five. And um, anyway, Philip had four daughters. But Philip goes out and this guy's going back home. He had come looking for religion. He came to find truth and... He probably saw the money merchandising and the, just the orthodoxy that was dead and, and he leaves without truth. And you guys know the story. The Lord sent Philip down there and this guy just happened to have the Hebrew Scriptures open to where? The text that we looked at tonight. You know the story. The guy said, who's this speaking of? Is this the man or somebody else? And beginning at that Scripture, Philip began to preach Jesus unto him. What a witness. Folks, there's a lot of people out there that are hungry, that are just dying to know Jesus. They just don't know it yet. And the Lord wants to use you as his hands and his feet and his mouthpiece. And so I encourage you. Hey, we went through a fun chapter tonight. It might have been a little different than normal. Maybe I'm way out there in left field. I don't know. I think Jesus and Paul kind of bailed me out of it. But uh, I pray that you guys will be such people of the word that no matter what questions someone might come up with for you, from the Bible, you'll be able to take them from that scripture and begin to preach Jesus to them. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Lord, it's exciting to see the way it all fits together. Old and New Testament, Lord, we realize that they're the only companions to one another. And how we thank you, Father, for opening up our hearts to believe the truth as Lord Jesus came into the very awareness of our being. And we pray, Father, that you'll help us to continue to grow and to learn. 
And we pray for those. Father, we pray for Albuquerque and the surrounding region. And Lord, where the radio stations reaching and the internet, we pray that you'll use this fellowship and every one of the families, the men, women, and children that come here to reach out to a community that so desperately needs you, Lord. We love you so much and thank you for the time we've had together tonight.